Let me unmute myself first. Open the Bible that you have in front of you or with you today and open it to Ephesians chapter 2. And while you turn there, let me just, uh, I was struck once again during our sharing time and during our prayer time just now that uh, uh, one of the the phrases that has captivated my attention, I don't know if it has yours or not, but it certainly did mine through our study of Ephesians so far that I've, and I know I've shared it with the rest of you, so whether it captivated you or not, you've heard it, is that Paul prayed for the Ephesian believers that the eyes of their hearts might be enlightened. The eyes of their hearts might be enlightened. And I was just struck again how appropriate that prayer is in all situations. Think of the prayer requests, the the few that we had this morning that were mentioned up front here, uh, of the necessity and how that simple, seemingly simple prayer is fitting in every situation. When you are kidnapped as a hostage, as a believer in a wicked place, to have the eyes of your heart opened up to see perhaps as Elisha and his servant uh, happened to them when they began to see, when the eyes of their hearts were opened to see that there were many more for us than are against us, right? What would it be like if these uh, brothers and sisters of ours who are in Haiti currently uh, would have the eyes of their hearts and were praying, I'm praying that God is doing exactly this, have their eyes of their heart opened so that in the midst of the darkness that they are in the middle of, that they can see the light of the glory of God For God is not kept out by guns or by evil people, is he? His spirit is not shut out, though they may, they try and they attempt. And the same is true as we pray for their captors, right? That the eyes of their heart would be open to see the futility of the road they have chosen. To see the corner they have backed themselves into. To see the no-win situation. To see the ultimate end of the path they have chosen. Right? Isn't that the prayer we're asking God to Uh, to bring out in their lives, that they would have the eyes of their hearts open to see this wickedness, this evil that they have been partaking in. When you're struggling with sickness, when you're picking up a piece of paper that has uh, some words of scripture in it, all of those requests, they fit. The more and more that I'm thinking through this, the more I realize how appropriate that prayer is for every, uh, every situation that we run into. And the more and more I would just continue to exhort us to pray those kinds of prayers for one another. That we would have the eyes of our hearts opened. When those things happen, we see the power of God. We see the frailty of man. We see the emptiness of the world and its attractions. We see the end of the choices that made in our flesh. We see the end of the choices that were made in the spirit. We see the power, I already said that, when we see the glory of God uh, as it's revealed to us, we see the truth that Jesus will prevail, we see the glorious coming of Jesus, we see the nearness of how close that is, the glorious coming of Jesus, and we want to prepare ourselves for it. Well, enough of that. By now, surely you've turned to Ephesians chapter 2. I don't suppose for a second it took you that long. Ephesians chapter 2. Now, there's a chapter break here, but in reality, there's not a break in the letter that Paul is writing. And he's going to follow up right on the heels as he is talking about uh, these eyes of their heart being opened, and he wants them to know several things. By the way, a little test. This is from a couple of weeks ago already. So uh, what are the things that Paul wants us to know? As he says, I'm praying that God would open the eyes of your heart deep inside that you may know some things. There were three things that we named that he thinks all of us believers should know. 
Do you know what those three things are? And you can always cheat. It's not really cheating because the Bible's in front of you and this is not really a test of sorts. It's just a way to help us remember things. What are the things that we should know that Paul wants us to know? And if you weren't here for those sermons, these are good quick uh, two-minute reminders of what was preached. What's that? Paul wants us to know the hope to which we have been called. Which, by the way, do you remember what that hope is? What is the chief, the greatest? There's lots of things we could fill in there. But the greatest hope that I think Paul would say that we've been called to is what? Is to become like Christ. To be in Christ and become like Christ. That Christ-likeness would be formed in us. Right? That's what he says to Philippians chapter 3. I forsake everything else. I count it as rubbish that I may know Christ. That it may be found in him. All right? First thing he wants us to know is the hope we're called. The second thing he wants us to know is what? Again, you can go back and cheat if you want. This is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18, 19, 20. The riches of his glorious inheritance. Which, by the way, who is that referring to? Hey, thank you. It's a little hard for us to say it still, right? It's us. It's the saints. We are God's glorious inheritance. We're going to see that again, by the way, today. We're going to see why it's like this. But we are God's glorious inheritance that someday, in glory, he will get to put on display the outcome, the fruit of the wonderful thing that he did through Jesus Christ. And the third thing that Paul wants us to know, as he's made us aware of how desperately needy we are because we're supposed to be like Christ and we're supposed to be God's glorious inheritance, he said, by the way, the third thing I want you to know is what? Somebody said it. Say it again louder. The immeasurably great power that God has working in those who are in Christ. For we are left thinking, how will I ever become like Christ? How will I ever become an actual glorious inheritance of God? Well, the answer is in the immeasurably great power that God is working in us those who are in Christ. He's going to follow that right up with what we're going to read today, and he's going to make that immeasurably great power applicable, personally applicable to each and every one of us as individuals and as a church. Now, these are the verses that come from the section that I have asked us to start memorizing or to make an attempt at memorizing, so we're going to take opportunity today, instead of you just listening to me read the text, I'm going to have you read it with me, because that's what we've been doing. Again, if you have picked up one of these little uh, bookmarks, uh, it's the text is on there. Uh, you can actually just follow along and read in your Bible. It's Ephesians chapter 2. I have chosen the first uh, 10 verses for memorization. Today we're only going to read through verse 7 because that's as far as we're going to be able to get in the time that, uh, that we have together this morning. Uh, there's, there's gonna be, that's going to be enough for us today. I invite you again to stand as we read together. I think it's helpful for us to set aside other things, to focus on the word that we're reading. Would you stand, set other things aside, either from your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 2, the first seven verses, or from the bookmark that I gave you, of the first seven verses of Ephesians chapter 2. Let's read them together. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Lord, would you reveal what this text has to say to us. We've been reading it. We've been trying to memorize it. We've been working on it. And I pray this morning you would illuminate it in an even deeper way to us. Open the eyes of our hearts to the truth contained in this scripture. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your aid in understanding the word of God. We submit to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I entitled my sermon, And You but God, because it divides very nicely and very neatly into those two parts. And you, but God. In this text, we're going to see a great contrast made between us and where we were at or who we were and between and, and God and who he is and what he has done. We're also going to see in one of the clearest presentations uh, that is in scripture of the gospel of Jesus Christ of the glory of our salvation, of exactly how it is that you and I as believers or followers of Jesus Christ can make any claim that we have, that, that we have to make that we will someday enter heaven and be with him. Today we will read exactly how that works. And you, but God. It neatly divides that way, so we're going to just jump in. The very first part comes from the very first verse. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, as I look at the statement, by the way, it's just a one long sentence. I just put the first part of it because there's not enough room on my screen. As you look at this one long sentence, it takes verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. It's a big long sentence. Paul keeps adding little phrases in. And I'm going to tell you this morning, it doesn't take a whole lot of brain power to actually assess what it's saying. It doesn't take a lot of, you know, working things out or looking at Greek words or finding nuances or, or, or checking other sources. It's pretty plain what it says, isn't it? It's pretty plain what it says. I think by design, though it's a long sentence... And there's lots of commas and addendums and other kinds of things. It's pretty plain what it's saying. It's almost as if Paul wanted to drive the point home. I'll make it clear, and I'm just going to say it in different ways over and over and over and over and over again, so that hopefully when I'm done and put a period in that sentence, you will have received what I want you to know about what I'm having to say here. So let's just take some time and walk through it a little bit. Again, this is not to illuminate or to help you understand something you didn't understand, it's to help you see the truth that is contained in Scripture about us. Now, Paul uses those words at the very beginning, so, and you. Now, he's writing to Ephesian believers, but as we always do with Scripture, we say, well, the things he wrote to Ephesian believers back in the first century are things that apply to, you know, us white pigeon believers, Indiana and Michigan believers in 2021. And you were dead... In the trespasses, the sidesteps, and the sins, the disobediences in which you once walked. Let me add a few descriptors to that. You were following the course of this world. You were going along with the flow and the current of what the world was doing. You were following the prince of the power of the air. Now, just to make sure we know who that is, who is that? That's Satan. 
Scripture makes it clear when it refers to him as the prince of the power of the air, the prince of that, the one who has power here in, on this, in this realm that God has given. That's Satan. He's been cast down out of heaven, and he has, for these years or for these moments, he has been granted some power. So make no mistake, he does have some power. We're following the current or the course of this world. We're following the prince of the power of the air. We're following the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. By the way, I told you it doesn't take a lot of Greek knowledge to figure out what this is trying to say to us, but I want to point out that the sons of disobedience, that word disobedience simply is the, uh, means unfaithful or those without faith. So there's a connection made there, by the way, between obedience and faith. If you're unfaithful, you're disobedient. If you're faithful, you're obedient. Uh, I would just tell you that in Scripture, those two are always like that. We tend to try to separate them sometimes. Say, well, I have faith, but I don't obey. Or, I, I've, you know, we, we, we separate them to make us feel better for when we don't walk out our faith. But Scripture never does that. Scripture makes the point that if you're not walking it out, then you don't really have it. <laughs> you don't really believe it. Because obviously, you do what you really believe deep down inside. You are following the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. This is not a pretty picture that is emerging. By the way, the very next thing he does, I think is brilliant. Because look at the very first words that he says as he continues to tack onto the sentence. He says, among whom, what's the next word? We all. Do you notice that when he started off the sentence, he said, and you were dead in the, your trespasses and your sins. You were following the course of this world. You were following the p prince of the power. Of the, you were, and by the way, among whom we all once lived. And he's including himself now. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We all were once carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath. The phrases just keep coming, don't they? We were by nature. It was inside of us. It was who we were born to be, is what Paul is saying. We were by nature children of wrath, like all the rest of mankind. In other words, you and I sitting in church here this morning, having been made aware of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, are no different than anybody else in the entire globe that has been born. At which moment it might become important for us to ask ourselves, do I really believe that? Do I really acknowledge that? Do I really accept that? Is that really how I see myself? Perhaps one of the greatest weaknesses or soft underbellies and hear me when I say this because I'm not speaking against it, but one of the soft underbellies of families, of, of children growing up in families that have gone to church and have a rich heritage and tradition of following Jesus Christ, one of the greatest soft underbellies is those children often tend to grow up not accepting the truth of this statement because they see themselves, it's a danger we fall into, they see themselves as somehow being more deserving and being different than the rest of mankind. That I received God's blessings because I somehow deserved it. Because I was somehow worth it. Because I was someone that God saw something in that went, that person I'm going to reveal to, but those people over there I'm not going to. Again, these words are not that hard to understand, are they? 
But the truth of them, the reason it deserves our careful, measured attention to them is because we have got to get to a place. Before we can get to verse 4, we've got to get to a place where I say, those verses are about me. I once was dead in the trespasses and sins that I once walked. I was following the course of the world. I was following the prince of the power of the air. I was following the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We all walked there. We all were. But I was one of those people who lived in the passion of my flesh. I carried out the desires of my body and my mind. And I was by nature a child of wrath just like everybody else. I can give you a quick summary if you want to sum up what is not pretty about these verses. Here it is. We were spiritually dead. We were separated from our creator. We got the wages of our sin. We got the fruit of the promise or the, the command that God gave to Adam and Eve at the very beginning. If you eat from the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, surely you will die. We were spiritually dead. When Jesus told the story of the prodigal son... Did you, do, you, do you know what the father called his son? Two times in that story, he says, my son is dead. Now, was he actually dead? You might make the argument that he, the father didn't really know. But was he actually dead? We know. No, he wasn't physically dead, was he? But he was dead. The father recognized deadness because he was fitting the definition of exactly these first verses. He was following the course of the world. He was following the power of the prince of the air. He was, he was doing what his flesh wanted to do, fulfilling the lust of his flesh, the, the will of his flesh. He was a child of wrath. The second thing we see is we were slaves of Satan. It does not say so directly here, but it's strongly, strongly implied when it uses it. When Paul repeats, we were following, we were following, we were under, and elsewhere in Scripture makes it clear that you are a slave to that which you obey. Did you hear that, church? Are you awake? You are a slave to that which you obey. It does not take that much for us to look at the outcome of our lives and see what am I obeying? What am I following? What am I following? What's calling? What's pulling my strings and, and making me move along? And that is which is doing that, I am a slave to. That's exactly what Scripture says. I can't, I, I can't make it any softer than that. I can't, I can't hedge any about, about that. I can't protect you anymore from that. The fruit of our lives tells us what we are enslaved to. And in this text, it's clear that we were slaves of Satan. And we were subject to divine wrath. Legitimately subject to divine wrath. Again, Scripture is very clear from the very beginning. If you will disobey God, you are subject to his wrath. And I don't think I have to spend a whole lot of time with you this morning laying out what it looks like when God gets angry. By the way, one of the reasons I'm stressing this so much and one of the reasons I put one, the word up there, and it says, it's, I didn't, it wasn't my word, it's there, very first, very fourth word in it for me, in my text, and you were dead. Think of the necessity of coming all the way to the, 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 the picture of death. Think of what it means. It is only in death that there is no more striving, no more chance for you to save yourself, if I can put it that way. There's no more chance for you. Picture the man who is out in the desert and is dying from lack of water. 
As long as he is alive, he can be making some measure of effort. Though it may be meager, though he may be weak, though he may be crawling through the sand in hopes that he might, over the next rise, find an oasis. He can still do something, can't he? The only moment that comes when it is no longer possible for him to do anything to save himself is the moment he dies. Right? Up until that point, there's a shred of chance. There's an iota of a percent that says, I can still do something to change my situation. I'm telling you, it is no accident that the Holy Spirit brought these words out of Paul and used the example and why Scripture itself talks about death, spiritually versus physically, because it's the only thing that helps us see that we don't have a chance of changing the outcome of our eternal destiny. Short of the words, words we're going to read coming up. Right? It's the only place, it's the only way, place we get that says, I have no more striving. I can lift no more finger to alter where that's headed. I don't have any more chance. I am dead. Because once I'm dead, it's too late. Right? It's in light of all the stuff I just said, which is not fun for anybody to focus on all this, this ugly stuff that is true about us. And it just like piles on. It's like, well, Paul, give me a chance. Nope, I'm going to just put a note. I just going to keep piling. But it's in light of that that makes one little word, or actually just a little phrase there, really so critical. I already read it. In fact, it's very early on in what I read. And it's these, I'm just going to put these two words up there, but it's really just the one word that, uh, I've used the other word too because it's a past tense verb. What does that say? You read it. What does that say? What does that mean to say, I once walked? What does that mean? It's past. That means something changed, right? If I say, I once walked that way, then I'm implying that I don't anymore. I'm implying that something changed that direction. And if I've just gone to great lengths to convince you that you could not do that yourself, what does that mean? That means that somebody else changed the direction of your life. Somebody else changed the course that you were walking. Somebody else changed who you were following. Somebody else changed your status. Somebody else changed that for you from dead to no longer being dead. And that's why the greatest words we read in Scripture are these next words. But God... But God being rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us. And again, Paul has this long flowing sentence with parenthetical insertions and all kinds of commas and all kinds of extensions and all kinds. Because he's doing the very same thing. As much as I took you to the depths, he says, I'm going to lift you back out to help you realize how glorious it is that we read these next verses in Ephesians chapter 2. God being rich in mercy, there is no shortage. He's not about to run out. His bag will never run empty of what he has in there in verse of mercy. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. And then comes this phrase. He made us alive together with Christ. You see why he said he had to focus on the fact that we were dead? You see why he took us and he kept driving and kept driving and kept driving until every one of us is willing to acknowledge that, yes, I was dead. I was without hope. I could lift no more finger. I could crawl no more few inches. I could do nothing. 
Because that's when I can receive the truth that God, because of his great mercy and his love that he loved us, even when I was in that position of deadness, he made us alive together with Christ. That is a long phrase in English. I can tell you there are actually two words in the Greek there. The Christ word, you already know, it's Christos. That, that's pretty easy. Which means the rest of it is all one word. Here's the word. I love this word. It's one of my, it became my favorite word this week. It's kind of hard to say. I probably still won't say it right. Sudzo apoeho is what, it's, what it is. It's one of those famous Greek words that just keeps putting words together to say what it wants to say. There's actually three words in there. Poeho means to make or to do, to, to, to carry out an action. Zoop, which is a form of the word zoe, which means life, means a living thing. Or to make alive again is actually what it carries the connotation. And soon is the prefix in the front, S-U-N, which means together with. So what that word means is to make alive again together with. Don't you love it when there's like one word that says a whole bunch of things? And I'm telling you, this is the most fantastic word in all of Scripture. To be made alive again, you were dead. So alive again, to be made alive again together with someone. It's not just that God said, you were dead and I'm going to bring you back to life. But what's even better is you were dead and I'm going to bring you back to life together with my son, Jesus Christ, who is the pinnacle of, crea of, of creation. All creation worships him and adores him and is under him. He made everything to come into existence. He is the living word and you are brought to, back to life again with him. Now, if that doesn't get you excited, I don't think I can give you anything that ever will. To make alive again together with. Now we see pieces falling into place. We ought to. This scriptural theme that's all the way through but just comes out real strong in the Gospels. This whole phrase. And we say it and we use it. And we don't always remember what it means. To be born again. Jesus said those words, right? John 3, 3. Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, what does it mean to be born again? It means you have to have died. You can't be born again if you didn't die. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Sudzo apoyeho, it has to happen to you. You have to recognize that you were dead in the trespass and sins in which you once walked. But now, because God's great mercy and the love that he loved you with, he has made you alive together with Christ. Has made you alive again together with Christ. First Peter, Peter opens his epistle the same way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But you know, Paul isn't even done with this together with. He's like, it's like, I don't know what was happening to Paul as he wrote these things. I don't know. I, I'm not saying I'm like him or he's like me or whatever, but it, I, it, I can visualize myself in the situation and you just about can't sit still in the chair as, he, as these things start, and he gets all excited because he's not even done with that whole, that whole together with theme. After a little parenthetical insertion there, he says, he's made us alive together with Christ. This is in verse five. And then he ends it by saying, it's by grace you've been saved in case you don't know it. Remember, you didn't have anything to do with it, right? You were dead. You can't lift a finger when you're dead. You can't make any effort when you're dead. You're done. It's the end. But God, in his great mercy, in the great love with which he loved you, even while you were still dead, he made you alive together with Christ. Hey, it's by grace you've been saved. And then he wants to flesh out what he means with this sozaopoeho word by using two more together with words. Before I read them to you, I want to point you back, though, to two weeks ago when we studied the last time 
because there's a phrase, there's a verse that he's going to put some coupling together with very intentionally for us. Back when he began to talk about God's immeasurably great power in chapter one, remember that? He said, the best example I can give you of God's immeasurably great power is what he did through Jesus Christ. And he uses this in Ephesians chapter one, verse 20. He says, this is the great power that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So just, just like stick that in your mind for a, a brief 10 seconds here. He raised Jesus from the dead and he seated him at his right hand. And every one of us says, oh yeah, I know that, right? I know that. God brought Jesus out of the throne, out of the grave, and he put him on the throne. He put him on the right hand of God. Guess what the next two together with words are that, Jesus, or that Paul is going to use in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. God, when he made us alive again together with Christ, he uses these two words. Sun egairo and sun ketizo. Let me read it in English to you. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. At which moment, every one of us should stop and say, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. Are you telling me that God, when he made us alive with Christ, which is a phrase I can kind of get, start getting a hold of, that to flesh that out, I should see it, that he did exactly what he did with Jesus. He brought him back to life again. That's what sunagaro means, to raise from the dead together with. And he seated me right where Jesus is seated. That's what sunketizo means, by the way, to seat in company together with. Yes, in fact, I'm telling you that's exactly what Scripture says. I'm telling you that's exactly what Paul is saying to the Ephesian believers. It's exactly what I am telling you this morning from this, these verses. The glorious truth of Jesus Christ is that our position has changed. You know those words that were being used earlier? We were uh, the sons of disobedience. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Those are like genetic types of words, right? Like we were following, we were inheriting this stuff and we were following all these things. And that, of course, is contrasted against uh, walking as children of light. That's what this whole series is called because we didn't get to that yet. Walking as children of light. But here's actually the mechanism by which, by which it happened. Our lineage was changed, if I can put it that way. Our position was changed. Your position was changed. You who once walked in the trespasses and sins that you, that you used to carry out as you followed the, flesh, the desires of your flesh and your mind, you were like everyone else was, a child of wrath. God, in his mercy and his grace towards you and the great love with which he loved you, he made you alive again. And when he did that, he did that with Jesus Christ. So he did the exact same thing that God did with Jesus Christ, which is to bring him out of the grave and to seat him at the highest place. If you don't believe me that Paul was convinced of this, let me read a couple of other things from the book of Colossians because he's going to say the same kinds of things, slightly different. So I just wanted you to read it, or I don't want you to hear it. This is from Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to read verse 9 through 15. For in him, in Jesus, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you, we, all of us, you uh, have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him. Hey, guess what? There's that word popping up again. Sunagaro. You've been raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. 
And you who were dead in the trespasses, and the, excuse me, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Hey, there's my other favorite word, Suza Opoeho. I can't even say it this morning anymore. You made, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. <clears throat> he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, the one word we didn't really touch on in that text is the last word, sum katidzo, but if you just hang on a little bit, a few verses later, as what we, for, for us, the beginning of chapter 3, Paul is continuing to talk, and he says this. He says, if then you've been raised with Christ, sunagadro, you've been raised with Christ, then you should seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Well, yeah, that's where Christ is. Then he says, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, and he tells us why. For you have died... And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, we can do some twisting and turning and, and turn ourselves into pretzels and do all kinds of stuff with that text to, 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 to kind of shy away. But, but I think at the plain reading of that text, where, where, where is your true life? Where is your, if I can put it, I think I've actually phrased it this way, maybe in here in church even, where is your soul at when you are saved and you trust in Jesus Christ? Where are you at? Now, physically, we know you're still here, right? No question. But where are you really at? I mean, what does it mean when it says that your life is hidden with Christ in God? If you are hidden in Christ, where is Christ at? <laughs> Christ is at the right hand of God. That's this word right here, sun katidzo. You see, I think so much of, well, I, this makes it sound like a big fell swoop, like it's a big broad brush and everything would just go away. It's not really true. But, but so much of our problem often is that we don't even see ourselves or we don't think correctly. We don't understand that our position has changed. Like this great exchange happened, right? When you and I trust in Jesus Christ, my soul is hidden with him. My spirit, maybe I should put it that way, my spirit is hidden with him. Where's his spirit at, by the way? Where's his spirit? Yeah, I saw some one of you do it. His spirit is hidden in me. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's what Paul said. The problem is we don't see ourselves that way, do we? Most times we don't, I don't think. I think we see ourselves as firmly stuck here on terra firma, on this, this ground, this earth. It's exactly why we can say, I'm passing through here. This is not my home. This is not where I belong. I can't say this is not my home if, I'm not, if, if I don't know there's somewhere else that I'm already dwelling, Right? I can't say that. There's undoubtedly much more here than what I could say that I, I, I don't know how to bring it out. I'm trusting that God is opening the eyes of our hearts. Listen, let's make sure of something though. This is not about us. This is not to lift us up or to glorify us or be like, look how great we are because we're seated with Christ. How did we get there? Well, did we catch the first part of the sermon? We were dead. We were helpless. We were following the course of this world and the power of the prince of the air. We were following the, flesh, the, the, the lust of our own flesh. We were just satisfying our own passions. We were doing whatever we wanted to do. We were selfish. We were dead. We were without hope. We were deserving of God's divine wrath. <laughs> but God, because of how much he loves us, in Christ did all of these things. The focus is firmly on Jesus Christ. It's why Paul wrote in this letter to the Corinthians, 
Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, the first part of that verse is a quotation. It's quoting all the way back in the beginning of the book of Genesis when God formed Adam from the dust of the earth and he breathed into him and it says, and thus he became a living being. He was alive. But the second Adam, the last Adam, who we call, are you awake? We call who? That's Jesus. The last Adam is Jesus, please. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, I highlighted the word life-giving because you want to know what that word is? It's the word zoopoieho. He gives us life, which is why Paul can say that God has made us alive again together with Jesus Christ because he's the one that gives life. And let's not make any mistakes. He's the one who has the authority to do so. Over and over and over again. I'm going to give you just a few examples just to make sure we get it. But over and over and over again, we see in the Gospels, Jesus, as he's clashing with the religious leaders, he is saying again and again and again through different various means, I'm the one who has authority to do this. John chapter 5, verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Just four verses later. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, there is clear reference if you go back and read that entire text. We're not going to do it this morning. But if you go back and read that entire text surrounding in, Roman, in John chapter 5, there's clear indication that at some level it is also talking about a physical resurrection. A physical coming back to life, which will be true. But there's also clearly what he's talking about is not just in the physical realm. And I would tell you this verse I put up here, he is referring not necessarily simply to us physically coming back to life after we've, gone, after we've died. But he's talking about us spiritually. Those who are dead, how else would you explain when he says, and it's now here. Those who are dead are hearing the voice of the Son of God and they will live if they hear. If the eyes of their hearts are enlightened, they will hear the voice of the one who has the power to give life to those who are dead, and they will come alive. That is right there what it means to be saved. Hearing who Jesus is and his voice calling and what was dead comes alive. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says this, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Again, he's setting up the, 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 the vast gulf between the prince of the power of the air that we once walked with and once followed and once did what he wanted, but no longer because he is only interested in death, killing, stealing, destroying. But Jesus says, I'm here to give you life. When, jo when Jesus showed up on the scene when Lazarus had died in John chapter 11, he says, before he went and raised him from the dead, he says to his sister, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, again, we know these words. We've read them, and they're always, they're, they're trotted out, and they should be trotted out. They're incredible words. But do we read them carefully enough? You notice the contrast even within these words that he's setting up. He says two things that are different from each other. If you believe in him, though you die, you shall live. And how can he say in the very next breath, if you live and believe in him, you'll never die. He just said, though you die, you'll live. It's because he's talking about two different things. The first is our spiritual awakening. We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. We've been there this morning. I, I just have to keep making the point because we have to realize that we were dead. When we die, 
When we die to ourselves, Jesus spends much time talking about this. When we lay down and realize that we're dead, and so we die to those passions and those, those desires of flesh, we die to, to being a bond slave to Satan, and then we come alive. And when that happens, then we will never die again. That's called eternity in heaven with Jesus. Again, it behooves us, as we already did once today, when I pressured you to, or, or pressed in on us to say that uh, we were dead, and I asked you, do you really believe this? Now we have to see the other side of it and say, do you really believe this about Jesus? That though you are dead and helpless, that he has made you alive. If you will yield to him and will die to yourself, that he will make you alive such that you will never die. Do you believe this? There's many more things we could say about this text. There's many more connections we can make. For example, I'll just give you a quick example. When you read, this is in Ephesians, back in Ephesians chapter 2, the first seven verses. When you read in the very first verse, uh, my, actually it's in verse 2 already. Uh, in, when we were walking, we were following the course of this world. That word course is actually the word aeon, A-I-E-A-I-O-N. Sorry, A-E-I-O-N, if I get it spelled right. You don't have it up there. I'm not going to put it up there. But it really, it's where we, we get the word eon from, by the way. It's, it's, the, it's the age. It's, it's, the, it's, what, it's the, the course of the world is, is the age. It's, it's, it's what the people of the world do. But it's the very same word that shows up down in verse 7. When God saved us and made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Christ and, and seated us with Christ, so that in the coming ages, there's the very same word, aeon, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. In other words, God is again about making that contrast. Here in this age, you're walking among this mess because you're led by the person that only seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. But in the coming age, I will put on display my incredible redemptive power that I've, put, that, that I've done, worked through Jesus Christ. I've made you alive with him. I've raised you up with him. I've seated you with him so that everyone might know in the coming ages the riches, the immeasurable riches of grace and kindness that has been showed to us in Christ Jesus. By the way, that scene, if you want to see what that scene looks like, you read Revelation chapter 5. And you see that as we gather around the throne, people from all tribes and nations and tongues and the elders and the beasts, uh, the, the, the uh, oh, I just went out of my head. What are they called? The four, uh, four living creatures. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's just like, whoosh, out of my head. But you see this scene painted around the throne and that's, that's exactly what you're reading. You're reading how God is putting on display the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's what they're singing. That's what they're worshiping about. How incredible is, by the way, that is what we will be doing for eternity. How incredible is it, God, the kindness, the grace that you showed to us in Jesus Christ? How incredible is Jesus for what he did? He went to the depth so that we might be raised to the height. In, in 2 Corinthians, Paul would write that he, for our sakes, became uh, poor so that, uh, that, didn't quite, that didn't quite come out right either. Second Corinthians 8, 9. Anybody know what that says? I'll just look it up because I think, I think I have the right reference. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So we just read today. The grace of Jesus Christ. He became poor, though he was rich, so that for our sake, the poor people, us, might become rich. And I left this last reference up because from our text this morning, I think it's very obvious who we were, who we are, who we were, 
It's very obvious what God has done. It's very obvious that the focus is on Jesus Christ, the grace, the kindness in Jesus Christ. We've been raised with Christ. Everything is with Christ. Everything is in him. Everything is through him. And it's very obvious that the purpose of it is that God would get glory forever and ever and ever. Which means we can still ask ourselves, is that what I believe? Do I believe that I was a creature of wrath, that I deserved God's punishment? Do I believe that God put on display through Jesus Christ the incredible riches of his kindness, that he loved me while I was still dead? I couldn't do anything about it. By grace, I've been saved. Do I believe that the whole point of that is so that God might be delighted in and worshiped and glorified for all of eternity? I mean, make no mistake, we get an incredible side benefit, don't we? To be in glory with him. But it's not about us. If you and I are not prepared to go to heaven to worship God for all eternity, for the glorious, kind, the immeasurable, immeasurable riches of grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ, if we're not prepared to go to heaven to do that, I don't think we're prepared for heaven. And I don't think we'll be there. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Your word has this way of bringing us into a place where we cannot argue with it as our eyes are opened to what it has to say. And I don't mean to say, Father, that we have everything figured out. But your word, as the Holy Spirit unfolds it to me and to us as we're studying together on a Sunday, Sunday morning, it brings us to a place where we can't claim any special interest, any righteousness of ourselves. The only things written here about us are things that don't make us look very good. And the only things written here about you, God, are things that make you look very, very good. The only things written about what we had to bring to the table and what we could do, uh, well, there's not anything written about that. We, we don't bring anything. But when it talks about what Jesus did as you made us alive together with him and raised us up with him together with him and you sat us up there with him together with him, we recognize who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And yet, God, though it may not appeal to our flesh in any way, it does not at all, actually. It's very hard on our flesh and our pride. And, but yet there is this sense of joy and peace as we surrender to that and say, yes, that is absolutely true about me. And I'm so grateful, God, that you, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which you loved me and us. While we were still dead in our trespasses and in our sin, you made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we've been saved. You raised us up together with Christ and you seated us with Christ in the heavenly places so that you might put, in the coming ages, God might put on display your immeasurable riches of grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Oh, oh God, it causes us to fall before you and to say, I need Jesus. And it causes us to rise again and bless your name and to say, God, may you be praised and glorified forever and ever, not just someday in the coming ages, but today in my heart and in my life and today out of my mouth. May it be so. Thank you. God, we give you praise and glory. We invite your continued pressing in of this text. We are in awe of the immeasurably great power that you have 
and that you put it on display and put it work in us. We confess that we do not avail ourselves to that power nearly enough. For we, we, we struggle and we try to do things ourselves. We are perhaps not quite convinced that we really were dead. We're not really willing to die completely, perhaps. Jesus, you said those words. If anyone wants to follow me, you must deny yourself and pick up your cross. We must lose our lives in this world that we might gain it. Give us understanding, Father, and not just mental assent, for we've heard those verses over and over again if we've been growing up in church, but give us understanding deep down inside of us. May the eyes of our hearts be opened that we see where we still lack, that we, in humility, submit ourselves and say, oh, God, forgive me. Help me. Raise me up with Christ. Raise me up with Christ. Show me. Show me my position. Show me my home where I will ultimately be called to so that when Christ is revealed, I also will be revealed with him in glory. Oh, to you is glory and honor and power and praise. You are a strong tower, a refuge for us. We hide ourselves in you, Jesus. Thank you. Pray these things in the precious and the powerful and the incredible name of Jesus Christ. Amen.